Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good, uh, all things considered. And there are some things indeed worth considering. I am uh, on Maui, uh, an island in Hawaii, about 2,000 miles away, 2,500 miles away from California, west of California, close to closer to Asia, not close to, but closer to Asia. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm here with my girls. I'm here with my partner and uh, our, our daughter uh, for my, for, you know, for our daughter's uh, spring break. And, you know, I love spring. So anything involving a week to take time to celebrate spring, yeah, I'm a big fan. Rock on. Let's do that. Let's do more of that, you know. So that's good. But before we get into that and get into the good stuff, let's talk about the not so good stuff. Um, some of you may have heard or not that uh, we received a RCE vulnerability in the Spring framework that was leaked out ahead of the CVE publication. Uh, the issue was first reported to the VMware uh, team late on Tuesday evening, close to midnight, uh, GMT by Code Plutos, uh, Maids, Shame 31 of Ant Group FG. On Wednesday, we worked through the investigation analysis and we identified a fix, tested it, uh, and we are aiming for an emergency release on Thursday. In the meantime, um, details were leaked in full detail online, uh, which is why we've had to provide this sort of guide. There's a blog on spring.io uh, for such blog, and you'll, it's the latest one. It's uh, 31 March 2022, and uh, it's called the Spring Framework RCE Early Announcement. Uh, and basically, uh, if you're using Spring WebFlex or Spring WebMVC, and you're deploy, and this is important, if you're deploying as a .war, so if you're doing an embedded jar, then um, uh, for now, as far as we know, that that doesn't – it's not at risk. Um, and also if you're using Java 9. So you need to use Java 9, you need to use .war, and um, you need to use one of the two web frameworks. The two web frameworks thing is pretty common. I, I expect a lot of applications will have that. But um, deploying as a .war, that'll be less. And then deploying on Java 9 or later, that'll be – well. Sadly, less. You know, it, it should be more. Uh, but uh, I suppose for now, it's kind of a good thing. Um, there are fixes. This is important. There are updated versions of Spring Boot uh, for Spring Boot 2.6 and Spring Boot 2.5 uh, that fix this, that bring in Spring Framework versions that have fixed the, uh, the, the, that address the vulnerability for Spring Framework 5.3x and Spring Framework 5.2x. Um, there is also some thing. There are also some things you can do as workarounds. So the blog details uh, specifying uh, disallowed fields on the web data binder through a controller advice. So again, anything, any version of Spring uh, running on these with these particular configurations is vulnerable, except for the latest and greatest Spring Framework 5.3x and 5.2x. So. Uh, for now, as far as I know, that's 5.3.18 and 5.2.20. So you need to get to those versions. Uh, you can go to, you know, you can get the new versions uh, through the normal means, upgrade immediately. Um, and uh, yeah, just check out the blog yeah, for a lot of a lot more details, right, on workarounds. It applies, as, it, as far as I know, it also works 
it all the the exploit applies to earlier versions of Spring, like Spring Framework four. Uh, and so there, you're going to want to take advantage of these workarounds because we don't have updated versions of Spring Framework four available. Or at least I don't think we do, right? Um, so yeah, just continue monitoring that blog. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Yeah, obviously, this kind of stuff is no fun, but at least it's now instead of like Friday night. You know, I guess that's something. I, I don't know. I got nothing. Um, ah, okay. Anyway, that's a hot mess. I'm not. I don't like uh, security business. So let's move on. I am in Maui. Uh, somebody's got to do it. It's a tough job, but darn it, I'm up to the task, and I and I did it. Uh, like I said, we're here for my daughter's spring break. Uh, she's she's 16 and a half, and uh, and in just a few short years, she'll be in college. A year and a half. I can't believe it. Um, and so we're just trying to squeeze every bit of family time that we can, um, you know, out of our lives together. We're trying to get it all, get as much as, get, get as much family time as we can so we can all just, uh, and, and enjoy it. And, you know, I remember those, those weird years when you go from, uh, you know, you're, uh, an older teenager to, a to like, you know, college life and, you know, you're legally an adult, you know, so you can, so you've got like a lot of things that you can do that you couldn't do before. Uh, you know, you know, we, we just don't know, right. Life is going to get busy. And so we're, we're just glad to, to have time, uh, with her, with our amazing little daughter. So, uh, you know, we're in Maui. Maui's beautiful. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the things they have here are turtles. Um, and and whales and we've seen some of those already we've seen turtles and whales we saw dolphins i mean it's just it's paradise you you, you cannot you can't really appreciate just how amazing these creatures are until you've seen them now granted you're not allowed to get very close to them i think it's like six meters or six feet or something like that maybe six feet uh but but either way you, you got to check your local check the local regulations i've we've been we've never gotten within you know uh like five meters of any of these creatures obviously because some of them are just shy and and timid and and otherwise they're just dangerous like a whale is you you don't want to get anywhere near that thing you know um whales are are again it's it's hard to appreciate just how big they are but they can be as long as a as a, a school bus right we're talking what 20 feet i mean and they weigh a ton per foot right so 20 tons i guess 15 tons i mean it's just a lot of, of animal, you know, a lot of whale. Uh, and they're just majestic and amazing. And, you know, this is their planet. We're just floating on their waters. And uh, it's just a privilege to have that 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 ability. It's not a right. It's just a privilege. Um, so, I, you know, I, I wish you, you were all here. But uh, because of that, because we've got such a uh, – because I'm so distracted and I'm having such a good time, I wanted to make sure that you got – a very, very good episode to tide you over uh, because to the extent that these introductions help an episode, and I'm not all that convinced that they do, um, the lack of an introduction, uh, you know, can only be compensated for by having a really, really great episode, right? A really good interview. And today, my friends, we have a really, really good interview. We have Craig McClucky, who's one of the three co-founders of the Kubernetes project, right? Uh, along with Joe Beta, who also works at uh, VMware. So Craig and Joe both work at uh, VMware on the Tanzu team, along with me. Uh, although to be clear, let's be very clear, um, like we we are not the same. <laughs> uh, we, 
at, at VMware, we have turtles as well. Did you know that? At the VMware campus uh, in, in California, it's a beautiful campus. It's crazy. It's a crazy drive. I'm, like, I haven't done it in a hot minute, but there used to be horses. You know, you could see uh, en route, you know, en route to the campus. You'd see horses. There was like, you know, acres and acres of just open field with farm with horses running around. It's something like out of a storybook or something. And then it's right in the middle of smack dab in the middle of Silicon Valley. So you're just in great weather. It's California. It's a little bit colder than Southern California, but still it's, you know, you don't get snow in California, right? Not, sorry, you don't get snow in the Northern California Bay area, you know, uh, in the same way you don't get it in the Southern California area. Right. So, so you, you, you're driving to this campus, this, paradise-like campus ensconced in acres of fields and horses and trees and uh, in blue skies and, you know, everything. And, uh, and you get to this campus and there are a number of different buildings. These buildings are built, I think, 15 odd plus years ago. They're, it's not that old, right? It was all recently done uh, specifically with an eye towards ecological conservation and so on. So when you get there, beautiful campus, beautiful buildings, everything is just amazing uh, and recyclable. That's important. We, we have a very strong uh, focus on conserving the the environment, and so when you get there, um, you've got these buildings, and these buildings, you know, they're they're separate. They, there's no connecting tunnels, or whatever, uh, but there are bridges, air bridges, so you can take these bridges from one building to another. And I guess the idea there is that once you're inside this like secured area, you don't have to leave the secured area to go to another building. Uh, but if you're outside, if you're just on the ground in the outside sort of non-secured area, um, you know, there's it's beautiful out there. It's just paradise. And so you can sit outside on these, you know, have a, find a chair, find a table, whatever, and just sit outside, have your lunch and, and enjoy the beautiful weather and the beautiful air. And there are turtles. Okay. We have rivers. We have little rivers that snake through the campus. And in these rivers, um, you'll find turtles. We, they even have a Twitter account. They're the V turtles. I think V turtle, V turtles, maybe, um, or maybe it's VMware turtles. I don't know, but just Google that. And you'll find the Twitter account for these amazingly beautiful little turtles. Uh, and these turtles, quite like the ones in Hawaii, are 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 just breathtaking. You know, we don't deserve turtles. You know, turtles. It, like I just mentioned, whales and turtles, both of whom can live seventy plus years. You know, like it, it's kind of crazy to think that there are whales out there right now that were alive when I Love Lucy was on the air for the first time, you know, like, like just, just absolutely insane to think about. There are turtles out there that have been around since I Love Lucy was on the air the first time, you know? Um, and so these creatures are just, they are the most amazing things. Um, and so I think about them a lot because they are, they're, they're just kind of these beautiful creatures that swim in our little streams and, uh, and and just chill out and they're just sunbathing and they're cute and amazing uh and if, i think they're there for like half the year or something like that obviously we, they don't stay for the colder months but uh they're there and um those turtles um are you know they're not even employees technically right uh but in the org chart for this company for, uh, for which i work uh i am happily happily uh, uh you know i have less uh clout in, 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 in the organization than those turtles. And, and that's fine, you know, because those turtles are amazing, right? But anyway, I, I mentioned that because this organization, Tanzu, is just filled with amazing people that are leading uh, the way towards all sorts of cool stuff for cloud, for spring, for enterprise, for all this stuff, you know? And I just feel really great. I just feel amazing being a, a, a tiny little fly on the wall, a gadfly, you know, just watching and observing and learning from all these amazing people 
Um, and uh, it's just me and the turtles, man. We're just out there enjoying the view, uh, and uh, we're kind of oblivious to all the goings-ons, but when good stuff happens, we know about it. And and one of the reasons that good stuff happens is because of, as I said, we, we've got Joe Beta and uh, we've got Craig McClucky. Uh, Craig, Craig is today's guest. And I, I can't tell you how grateful I am, Craig, for you uh, doing the show. I I was... I wasn't expecting a response, let alone one in the positive, but you can't blame a guy for trying. I asked, I, I, I pled, I begged, uh, you know, uh, would you be willing to do an episode? And, uh, he was so great about it. Oh, he was, yeah. Like just amazing. Uh, again, one of the big, 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 uh, names in the organization. So, uh, you know, I, I just, I get goosebumps. I've got goosebumps right now. I'm just talking to you right now. And I, I just cannot believe, uh, how cool it is to, to, you know, be able to get these people on the uh, on a Zoom call and just pick their pick their brains, and I I hope you get something out of it. Uh, as as far as my Kubernetes uh, Pokeball uh, goes, obviously this is two of the three. There's the uh, there's a third co-founder, um, Brendan Burns over at Microsoft. I guess he's the next one I should strive to get, huh? All right, well, thank you as always for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, we'll talk to you next time. so good that that works it's it's the miracle of the cloud and i don't need to tell anybody uh <laughs> any, anything i don't need to tell anybody more about that than you uh can you introduce yourself to the audience so i don't butcher it by accident yeah hey i'm Craig mcclucky um so i am a vice president of research and development here at uh, vmware responsible for our tanzu portfolio so i'm really looking across a lot of our investments in things like the spring ecosystem which is obviously something that we're very passionate about but also looking at ways to bring technologies like uh, Spring closer to infrastructure technologies um, like uh, Kubernetes and obviously um, some of the work that we're doing a little bit above the Kubernetes layer. I'm responsible for our investments in the Cloud Foundry ecosystem. And all of that gets wrapped up under a portfolio of technologies that we like to think of as Tanzu. So really happy to have a chance to connect and, and talk a little bit for a while. I appreciate it. Uh, obviously, Tanzu is top of mind uh, for a lot of people who listen to the show because, you know, when you're talking about Spring these days, you're talking about a group that is largely, save for all the people outside the company, of which there are, you know, countless, uh, it is largely uh, a Tanzu thing. It's right. It lives inside the Tanzu organization, which in turn lives inside of VMware, right? Yeah. Um, first of all, why? Is there like this nesting doll thing arrangement? You know, what is that? Why, why not just call it VMware? Like, yeah, I think, you know, when you look at, you know, where, where are we going as an industry and you kind of look, look at some of the key challenges that organizations face, you know, first and foremost, you know, when I think about VMware, it's a company that's living in service of uh, IT organizations. And, you know, the reality is that every enterprise organization out there right now is starting to identify as a software company. Um, and it's no longer really just about providing, you know, world-class infrastructure. You also need to provide a much richer set of services that are relevant to developers that are helping these enterprise organizations navigate the transition from self-identifying as a bank or self-identifying as retail and really starting to think about themselves as software companies that happen to deliver banking services or happen to sell things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, for us within VMware, it's really important to look at the broader story. And we, we do see the work that we're doing in Tanzu as being this, uh, 
you know, this, 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 this part of our, our sort of third wave of existence. The first wave of VMware's existence was really about, uh, you know, delivering a simple computationally based infrastructure abstraction, the hypervisor. Um, the second wave of VMware's uh, evolution was really about providing access to an entire data center as a service like experience. So effectively building out the, the, the private cloud capabilities. Now for the fourth wave of our existence, public cloud is a very real thing. And every enterprise organization out there is trying to think through how they navigate this, this public cloud universe. Um, and you know, front of conscious for them is really what experiences are we creating for developers um, on these technologies? And so for VMware, Tanzu is a, is a really important area of investment. Um, you know, we see this as just a wonderful opportunity to bring capabilities to what we're good at, which is relatively traditional infrastructure um, management, but to increasingly create value for the world in this public cloud space where it's really all about the developer and what set of capabilities, experiences, and services are available to developers that are being asked to start to deliver applications in this multi-cloud context. I love that. And I can I tell you something? I have maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just conjecturing here. I may work here, but I don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> I've I had this thought the other day that Tanzu is about you know bettering the the, the lot for, for developers with the asterisk that the people that are building your infrastructure are also developers these days, right? Yeah. Um, right. Like it's not just the app developers or whatever on top. It's the people building your infrastructure on top of Kubernetes, your, your resources, your CRDs, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And it's it's a really fascinating dynamic because um, you know, when I think about the you know the operation story, we talk a lot about, and there's a lot of buzzwords that that you know tend to bounce around in this world, right? We talk about DevOps, we talk about DevSecOps, we talk about GitOps. But at the end of the day, you know, all of those are really just providing a way for you to consume your infrastructure from code. We talk about infrastructure as code, the ability to effectively provide some kind of declarative expression of what you want your infrastructure environment to look at. Um, and the promise here is really just getting out of the way, like letting developers get access to the set of services that they need through the set of tools that they're familiar with. Um, and I definitely do see, you know, the work that we're doing here uh, in the sort of context of Tanzu as being a way to just provide a comfortable and, you know, hopefully over time as people actually start to really kind of engage with and use the technologies familiar um, environment that enables you to just focus on solving the problems you're being asked to, to focus on. I, I love it. I, I think about uh, former VMware CEO uh, and former pivotal CEO and co-founder, Paul Moritz. That was a mouthful of a sentence. I think about him a fair bit because at one point, you know, he's one of those people that just lets pearls of wisdom fly, come what may. And he he said something that was just so so interesting to me, given his breadth of experience in Microsoft for whatever, 20 odd plus years. Um, he said that, uh, you know, nobody uses Windows just for Windows, right? They use it for the applications that run on top of it, right? And so you you serve the goals of Windows by serving the goals of the developers that are building on top of Windows, right? And uh, and uh, and you make Windows more attractive by making all the applications more attractive. Uh, and so basically, I think about that a lot. I, I think we're I think what you have done, and now the the community is doing, and now what we're doing is making Kubernetes the new Win32, you know, the new kernel 
on which everything else is built. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's funny. I always joke about it. I, I spend a lot of time talking about Kubernetes. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's, it's really just a, a kernel effectively for distributed systems development. Um, and it, sh it sure as heck shouldn't be the user land, right? Like we don't want, <laughs> we don't want developers to be exposed to all the ookiness and the, the set of uh, experiences of, you know, programming to the kernel. Like you, yeah. you could be want a number of abstractions to sit between um, you, know, you and that piece of infrastructure. So it's, it's a useful starting point to start really thinking about the evolution of multi-cloud platform capabilities, but it's certainly not the destination by itself. It's just a part of the story. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, we should talk about that in a bit, but I, I, uh, I want to kind of start at the beginning and then come back to where we are right now. Uh, sure. So, so th you just met, we just talked about, uh, you're now, you said uh, SVP at, uh, at, VMware uh, now. I'm not that. I'm not that fancy. I'm just a VP. <laughs> I don't have oh. the S. I don't have the oh. S in my title. Well, you're a uh, LVP, legendary VP <laughs> at VMware. Um, okay, so good stuff. That's where you are now. Um, but be, there's a whole uh, crazy story here. First of all, I discovered, and I've I've worked with you not directly all that much. I'm afraid because you know I'm not cool like that. But I've worked with you and uh, for years now. Uh, you know, it's been it's been a hot minute since. Uh, since Pivotal uh, rejoined the, the mothership. Um, uh, but, and I, I just, I confess, I only discovered this recently in preparing for, this, for the show. You're from, you're from South Africa? Like, I'm from South Africa, yeah. I love, I've, oh man, I've got so many, uh, yeah. So tell me about that. What, what, how did you connect the dots? How did you get from born in South Africa to here or, you know, you know? Yeah, um, so it's a, it's kind of a funny story. I, I went to um, the University of Cape Town, and like for folks that haven't been to Cape Town, it's it's just one of the most amazing cities in the world. Like it's uh, it's just gorgeous. There's the the scenic kind of value of Cape Town is uh, is absolutely amazing. And um, I was a very very happy student because I was you know working in a postgraduate program um, for one of the telecommunication companies uh, in in South Africa. And uh, you know, studying um, to get my master's degree in uh, electrical engineering. Now, here's the funny part of the story: is that um, in South Africa, um, electrical engineering degree is not quite the same as it is here. Meaning, it was really pure electrical engineering. Like I didn't have any computer science coursework um, in, my, oh. in my background. I'd actually, you know, studied a fair bit of mathematics and then decided that. To get a job, I probably needed to do something that was a marketable skill. Um, and so as much as I, I delighted in, in, uh, in pure mathematics, I decided to study something that was kind of commercially interesting. And um, it took me down the road of, of electrical engineering. But you know, the closest I got to, I think, computer science was um, 8088 uh, assembly. Um, you know, I could, that was about as that was about all I was really kind of qualified to, to do. But um, so Microsoft recruiters came by campus and uh, this is at a point where, you know, things were a little tough in South Africa. Um, and I figured I would love to work at Microsoft. It was kind of the hotness back then, uh, back, you know, this was in the very late nineties. Uh, hotness was to work at, uh, at Microsoft and that a campus recruiter that was handing out these cards saying, what's wrong with this software? So I was like, gosh, I, I would just love to work there. And so I, I figured out what was wrong with that software and, managed to get an, an interview spot. And then um, 
I was lucky because I had some computer science buddies that uh, were sort of working in the same lab as me. And I'd, I'd been doing a little bit of work on, you know, writing uh, some C code to do um, some uh, emulation uh, work. And so I, I studied the NCC standard and memorized it and got a two-week crash course in Elgo. And uh, first got my way through a, a coding interview and, and ended up at Microsoft working on, believe it or not, clustering technologies for Windows Server back in back in 1999. What? Oh, so that's even before uh, Longhorn and... Oh yeah, I got to see all that stuff up, up close and personal. Um, yeah, so the, the technology I first worked on was, uh, was uh, we, we called it Wolfpack, it was the oh. clustering for NT4. Um, and you know, some people facetiously called it Wolfpair because it only really extended to two nodes from a you know, <laughs> reliable um, sort of failure domain perspective. but. Uh, it gave me a, a crash course in um, in writing, you know, software. Like my boss pretty quickly figured out that I didn't know how to code, so I had to figure that out very, very quickly. Uh, and it was a, just a, a good introduction into the the software space. I, I just honestly didn't see myself ending up in a in a software engineering position, but um, when offered the opportunity to work somewhere like that and come to the states and you know, with the, the great American dream, it was uh, it was just a wonderful opportunity. Good for us, for sure. I'm I'm glad about that. Did you just out of curiosity, were you there working on Wolfpack long enough to see uh, uh, the Hangover, or the yes. or one of the characters talks about being a Wolfpack of one? <laughs> you could have been a Wolfpack of a pair, right? Yeah, no, that that, that certainly happened after uh, oh. the movie happened after I left. But um, it was uh, it was it was a really interesting time, and I, I did get to see the. Um, the challenges associated with with Windows itself, as yeah. the, as the business kind of grew to a point of of rupture and the the kind of uh, Whistler and Longhorn uh, releases and all the rest of it. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I, at one point, I remember seeing. I mean, you, maybe I'm hallucinating, or maybe I got this wrong. But do you remember discussions of like a SQL Server based file system and crazy stuff? Like, I mean, really interesting stuff that if they could deliver on half of it, you'd be like, oh, that is cool, you know. Like, there was like, all kinds of cool ideas um, yeah. that that you know at the time, but it 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 really, and I I, I bet you there's been a lot. I mean, this is a conversation I've had with someone like um, that was you know kind of much more senior. I was I was pretty junior like during those days, so I was just kind of wandering around in the wilderness trying to figure out how to uh, you know do good work and you know grow and you know eventually you know get into the kind of uh, sort of middle management ranks of Microsoft. But um, definitely interesting times there. Yeah, absolutely. And so you traded the paradise-like uh, environs of of Cape Town, South Africa, which is you said it, but but it's worth it's worth restating. It is one of the most beautiful places I've ever had the privilege of being. And it doesn't matter if you're on what is it called the Horn something, the big mountain. I forget what it's called. Yeah, but. the Table Mountain is the is the uh, is the main mountain there. Yeah, it's just huge, and it it, it smooshes the entire city against yeah. the water there. So you you have nowhere to go in other directions, but you can go whatever along the water there. Ocean's um, on three sides and it's uh, and beautiful, like diversity of beaches and natural wonder. And it, it was just, yeah, it was beautiful. And, um, you know, to Seattle, which has its own charms. Right. Um, but I do, uh, you know, I do find the weather here a little bit gloomy, obviously. <laughs> um, like, well, yeah. Do we, do, so do you, and I imagine you have markedly less opportunity to practice your uh, Afrikaans 
Do you, do you, do you speak any Dutch, uh, Afrikaans, anything like that? Um, I used to be able to. Um, I was pretty much bilingual, but, uh, you know, 20 odd years of not using a language and it eventually just uh, gets paged out. And... Oh, no. <laughs> That's such a shame. Oh, well. Um, okay. Anyway, so you... So you're from there. Uh, and by the way, the other place that isn't, I mean, obviously, Johannesburg is gorgeous. I mean, there's so much to love there. But the other place that I found near there, have you ever been to Mauritius? That isn't, I've never have, been to Mauritius. I always wanted to go. That is also, beautiful. Yeah, that's a postcard. That is two, two of the most eye-wateringly beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And I've been a few places, yay software, uh, are right there. They're just, there's, there's Cape Town and, and Mauritius or Maurice in French, you know, like. Oh yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, you came from there to, from paradise and came to the land of the clouds, right? Uh, which is mm -hmm. Washington increasingly, right? As all these different uh, hyper cloud scalar companies are there and, and platform, the original platform builders there with windows, you know, Microsoft, uh, all that stuff. Um, and after Microsoft, what's, what's after that? I mean, you kind of peaked early, right? I mean, <laughs> well, uh, it was interesting. I, I, you know, I was, I certainly was, um, it's funny, I, 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 you know, talking about peaking early, like one of the earlier things I worked on was kind of bootstrapping this uh, printing format. I ended up moving from in the Windows Server Group to the printing team and, and bootstrapped um, uh, the, uh, the the sort of new uh, printing format. I thought I'd pretty much that was the biggest thing I'd ever work on. It was all done printing, right there. Printing format, like Envoy or PDF or? Uh, the, I can't even remember what it's called, like the XPS okay. format or something like that. So it was, okay. Uh, I, think, okay. I, I don't know, like it's, it was so long ago that uh, I've lost track of it, but um, uh, it was basically uh, an alternative to PostScript at the time. And uh, okay. I was a few years out of school and I kind of wrangled people together and persuaded them it was a good idea. And eventually it, 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 it happened. Um, I can't really claim credit for it happening, but I certainly kind of part of the early agitators that we needed it. And uh, I felt that was like a, you know, a huge landmark moment in my life. It was like, wow, I was instrumental in creating this thing and it's going to yeah. change and like, but but yeah. So, I think you know, I, I spent a lot of time at Microsoft, and uh, it was a good place to learn, um, you know, like software development. I, I quickly discovered that I was not a very good engineer. Um, that that became pretty obvious to me. It's never stopped me. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's like I, I um, it's funny because I always had this ability to do well in the kind of questions Microsoft would ask engineers what yeah. they imagine an engineer should look like. But you actually had, like, it's funny, uh, you know, much later in my life, you know, Joe had me, for instance, do a um, uh, do a coding interview. And I can tell you that story some other time. But uh, he was like, well, I want to see what, you know, like gave me a, a, a problem, which was basically implementing a transactional system in Go. Oh. And uh, I'd never, you know, programmed that. Like, I mean, I hadn't programmed in anger in like 15 years, but it was, you know, algorithmically it was ideal. Yeah, but semantically it was the ugliest thing. He was like, "Oh my god, this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen." And uh, <laughs> I took a look at. Like, I was like, "Well, what should it look like?" And I looked at his code and I was like, Ooh, "Oh, okay, yeah, like that's that's elegant, that's clean. This is just yeah. nasty." Um, but I, I did discover that I like people and I enjoyed the kind of versatility of um, you know both enjoyed management and I just enjoyed you know being the glue that holds a team together. So. I very quickly in my career transitioned from um, being an engineer for reals to being a people manager and also to being you know, effectively a program manager or product manager, and then eventually a, a kind of manager manager. Um, 
But I'd say, you know, there were there were a couple of things that really, you know, it was one moment, I think, in particular that really shaped my career um, was, I think this was about 2008. And I'd been at Microsoft for a while and uh, I was kind of like sort of in the doldrums of the, of, of, of sort of Microsoft reinventing itself. I mean, Satya's done such an amazing job of, of turning that company into something new. Um, but this was really on the tail end of what I, what I thought of as a post-monopoly malaise where a company that's been taken over by HR and finance and the legal uh, folks. And is, is, is kind of like, like there's no joy in it. Like there's no, there's no, there's no love and, and like life in the company at that time. Right. Um, and so I, uh, I put my resume out one, one sort of dreary uh, afternoon and uh, was uh, interviewed at a, at a, a hedge fund um, and, um, you know, I basically got a job at a, a pretty famous West Coast, uh, sorry, East Coast um, hedge fund running an IT shop. And it was, it was the most amazing experience. Like one is um, the company itself was amazing. Like the people around me were just uh, some of the most lucid, uh, incredibly thoughtful, um, you know, like just full of perspective individuals that you could possibly meet. They would hold these very kind of thoughtful opinions on pretty much anything. And um, it really changed the way I thought, but also learned about what, you know, how hard IT was, like just how appallingly, gut-wrenchingly challenging it can be to maintain the class of systems that, you know, were running on the platform technologies that I was responsible for building um, in a production context. You know, this, this terrible tension between meeting the needs of a, a, a business in, in, a, in an authentic way, just delivering the systems that keep the business afloat, uh, being sufficiently agile to, to meet the, uh, the business's needs, and then um, you know, keeping the lights on at the same time, avoiding significant outages, uh, the, the horrible lack of like, effective tools, like just having folks come to you with these Excel spreadsheets that were hundreds of megabytes, and you'd be like, why is this a spreadsheet? And the answer is, because that's where they code. Like, they, like the Excel macro was effectively their coding environment. Um, you know, seeing terrible things done with things like SharePoint that you have to try to unpick because um, they just didn't have access to the right tools. And that's like uh, that IT department right there. That's how. I mean, that's that's what we're exactly. It's the citizen coder. It's the it's 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 the it's the evolution of shadow IT. It's the yeah. It's the desperate clawing need that enterprise organizations have that you know to be able to use technology in a way that's actually supporting their day-to-day -day operations, and their day-to-day -day needs. And quickly, uh, that's the other and, thing. And, and quickly. They don't have six-month so, turnaround cycle. You just, just can't afford it, right? And yeah. so, um, and so they, you know, folks would turn to you know, what they could access, which would be a, a consultant that they could hire to write a little SharePoint extension. And then at some point down the line, um, the thing would fall over, right? You know, it's like, oh, wow, the spreadsheet no longer opens because it's got so complex. And that's affecting our ability to trade or uh, this, um, you know, this IT system that we put in place um, because it's all built on, you know, the way that sort of SharePoint at the time was structured. It was all, you know, you know fully denormalized SQL queries. And eventually you get 20,000 rows in a table um, and the queries would time out. And so suddenly the tool that used to work, okay, just stopped working. Um, and you had no recourse. There was no practical way for you to, address that in the moment. Um, and so that really galvanized me um, to really pursue a career that was serving that person, serving that guy, because I know their attention so well. Like I, 
I can feel it still. I can feel yeah. the anxiety in me as I think about like, up. having to uh, just having to deal with those class of issues. And that, that you know, every every step in my career after that was really navigating in a direction to just make better tech available to developers in a more accessible self-service way. And that's really motivated me, you know, through my through my career. And uh, that's a, that's awesome. And it's clear in the trajectory you've taken. Part of my career was to avoid having to part of my career uh, arc line was to avoid having to use SharePoint again. So we're kind of on the same, <laughs> not quite, not quite, but I, I once worked at a large bank oh, that was using ClearCase and ClearQuest from the Distinguished Competition. And uh, uh, it was so terrible that they ended up using SharePoint. So at that point, they just, they would take the thing from ClearCase, copy and paste it into SharePoint. People would work with that, but since ClearCase was the organizational standard, Somebody would then have to synchronize by copying, pasting everything that was updated there back to. And you have, and you have no single system of record. And oh, it was I mean, it's just, it, it, yeah, absolutely horrendous. Um, so, and it's yeah. not like that the solution either. You know, it's just oh, it happened to be better than clear case. You know, and this is and this is the this is the life that um, you know I think a lot of developers lead, which is you know smart people that are invested in driving the success of the company that they work for. Yeah, but the quality of tools, like you know, you, if you spend your day hammering in screws, like it, it gets really, gets really irksome. Like, I was very lucky because people, there's a there's a way to uh, cauterize the wound, so to speak, which is that for the longest time, it may still be the, the case. I think you were limited to like sixty thousand rows in a spreadsheet. Yeah. So so like at some point, somebody was going to come asking for my help, right? When they bumped into this, like, oh, I can't add another row problem, right? That was when I knew it wouldn't get any worse than 60,000 rows of, of mistakes, you know what I'm saying? Uh, which, if you're depending on the kind of data you're dealing with, that will come quick. Um, but yeah, these runaway processes, man, oh, wow, they are <laughs> the cause of and the solution to all of life's problems. Uh, I don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah, that, you're, try, you, you're, you're in it for the, the little uh, guy or gal, right? The, 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 the Porsche love having to try and make these shadow IT processes, these very agile sort of use cases, all that kind of stuff. They have to make, they have to take that dream and turn it into reality. It's not easy. Uh, what's the next step? Like, how do you? Yeah. So for, for me, it was it was kind of interesting because um, you know it's funny. I remember when I quit, I wrote this sort of manifesto, and and you know, for what it's worth, um, at the time, you know that company paid really, really well. Right? So oh, yeah. I took like a, a two-thirds pay cut right? to, to go back to big tech. And I was like, dang it, I'm going to go back to big tech and I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to, you know, try to solve these problems systematically for everyone permanently. That's a far, it's a far more evocative use of my time than, 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 than like living in the machine. I'd rather fix the machine than live in the machine. There, there was a, in the Java community, there's a yak bison, you know, the grammar generator combination yeah. from C. There's an alternative to that in the Java community called Antler, written by a professor named Terrence Parr, if memory serves. I think he's at Stanford, actually. He's, he's not all that far from here, I suppose. Um, and maybe it's Berkeley, I don't know. Anyway, he's a, a brilliant fella, and he wrote this alternative. It's a, it's a grammar generator, right? It's a, a declared grammar generator. Um, and he wrote and he said he had at some point he was trying to build a solution to something and he thought I can write I can write this recursive descent parser easily by myself it'll probably take five ten minutes 
But he said, instead of just writing it manually and slogging through it, he said, it's easier for me to spend five years automating it, you know? So <laughs> he just couldn't bring himself to write got, that. Article. I can't do it. I can't do it. Can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he, yeah, you remind me of him. Yeah, no, and so, you know, I went back to Microsoft um, and, you know, went back to the previous team. So at the time I was working in, um, you know, kind of on middleware technology. So I kind of gravitated out of the server ecosystem, did a, a tour of duty at the hedge fund um, and uh, and decided to go and like, you know, bring what I've learned back to, to Microsoft. But you know, when you think about it at the time, um, you know, SaaS was starting to really happen and, you know, Back to that sort of earlier conversation, really trying to channel the, you know, really trying to channel the needs of that individual that's that's caught in the belly of the beast. Um, <laughs> it seemed it seemed to me that uh, you know being able to kind of you know move in the direction of of SaaS was was interesting, and um, at the same time, public cloud was starting to happen. You know, we we had started to see you know the emergence of of AWS, um, uh, Azure was still, a, you know, like a, a twinkle in Satya's eye. Um, but I figured that, you know, the, the place to learn how to deliver a cloud-based service was likely going to be at Google. Yeah. Um, and so I applied for a job at Google and had the privilege of getting to be the first uh, product manager on what was at the time called Big Cluster, Again, the theme of clustering keeps coming up in my life. Um, but Big Cluster was really intended to be a VM as a service uh, offering. And so, so this one could do three nodes. <laughs> probably a little more than that, but yeah. Okay. Um, so this was, uh, this was effective. This was the predecessor. This was what became Google Compute Engine, right? right. Wow. Uh, and so the idea here was, uh, this is where I met Joe Beta. And Joe Beta and I have worked together, you know, for the last... Um, you know, well over a decade, and, you know, most of the stuff that we've done that's of, I always joke, the things that I've done that are, are great, uh, it's because it has Joe's fingerprints on them, right? Um, and uh, so I, I got to, you know, be the first PM on uh, Google Compute Engine at a time when Google was still unclear about their own ambitions in the public cloud space. So this was before, this was before Diane Green joined. This was before Thomas Kurian. Um, and this was a, a wonderful opportunity to learn how to build SaaS. And SaaS is fascinating because I remember sitting down with Joe and um, I, I was really programmed at that time for building traditional package software. So when you're building traditional package software, you obviously sweat the details on, you know, it's, it's, it's very waterfall-y by nature. Um, so I was kind of, you know, programmed for waterfall delivery and, you know, all that goes with waterfall delivery of software. And uh, I remember having this conversation with Joe. I was like, what, what, like, we, we're going to, like, you're going to push that out now? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, but what if there's a bug? And he was like, uh, we'll fix it. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, oh, and it just like changed the whole way I thought about the world because it was just so much more immediate. It was so yeah. much, it was living. It wasn't this it wasn't this dead desiccated thing that you throw over the wall at a customer after a uh, nine month sales cycle that they eventually deploy, you know, and, you know, end months down the line. And then you, you kind of patch on a, on an annual cadence or on an 18 month cadence, depending on what your customer can actually absorb. Right. It was, uh, it was a living thing. And it was, it was, it was RTM. Like, yep. The old, good old RTM. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was, a, it was, a, you know, so that was just a great journey. Um, yeah. 
as we built out Compute Engine. And you know, it had its it certainly had its ups and downs. Um, you know, the Google data center at the time wasn't necessarily tuned to running stateful virtual machine workloads. No. Um, so we had to kind of get a little creative around how we you know, anchored and positioned the offering, but it, it, it definitely gave an education. What, what I always thought was interesting was that Google kind of did it in, in the reverse order, to my mind at least, the way I think. They built the higher level abstraction first, then they built the low level infrastructure that would logically support it you know, they built Google App Engine, the original yeah. platform as a service, right? And that was out there and successful and scalable and all that years before Google Compute Engine, which I always thought was like, uh, you know, you, you, I would have thought the first, I would have thought the latter was prerequisite to the former, but nope, apparently they just had it both. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this was kind of that, in, that inversion of operations was, was problematic because um, now when you think about it, like the classic shortcomings of a platform as a service technology, like, you know, PaaS, you know, gives you wings in some ways in that it, it, it takes a lot of the operational complexities out of your day-to-day -day existence. Yeah. Until you reach the logical experiential cliff associated <laughs> with the PaaS. Right. And, you know, and, you know, for Google, um, you know, App Engine represented this very high level of abstraction, very powerful, very scalable, very progressive. Yeah. If you were building something from the ground up, you would probably, you know, like there's a good chance you'd use App Engine until you found the features where it just didn't work. And then trying to shoehorn stuff into a model that just didn't fit was, was problematic. And the reality is when customers reach the experiential cliff, I always, always have this sort of visual in my mind of people kind of pouring off the experiential cliff and you know, some, you know, hanging on a rope and eventually recognizing the only way they're going to go is climb all the way down. And then recognizing that, well, since I'm down here, I might as well just pull everything down with me. Because <laughs> if I'm going to invest in something like, uh, if I'm going to invest in a, uh, you know, an Ansible or a, chef or assault, you know, kind of DevOps narrative, I may as well just pursue homogeneity. And then, you know, uh, and so it, that, 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 that sort of dissonance was, was pretty significant. Um, it was also clear, you know, to be honest, that it was probably daily dollar short, um, meaning, you know, to build a successful cloud, public cloud, it's not just about the tech. I mean, because like Google Computer Engine's wicked cool tech. Like if you actually yeah. look at the, you know, look at the API. I mean, Joe's always had a good eye for APIs, and um, it had a really, it had a really neat, elegant API. It had some really favorable kind of operating characteristics because the Google data centers were pretty whiz bang back then. But um, <laughs> no, without, without more, we weren't going to make significant inroads because I've always been a bit of a business guy as well, right? Like, just like you know, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you turn um, the work of developers into customer delight, and then how do you turn customer delight into revenue? Like, that's a, a, a basic kind of thesis for. Right. Um, you know, anyone in the, in the business side of it. And, and we were not going to get there on our own, uh, own speed and course. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay. So you, you, you turned, you were at Google Compute Engine. Yeah. You, you had seen enough people fall off that experiential cliff, experiential yeah. cliff. And by the way, I, the thing that's so tempting about pulling everything down is that for the first app you build, it's probably not that big a delta between the conciseness of the platform as a service and whatever it is, whatever incantation you had to use from CloudFormation or Google Google's particular YAML or 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 whatever, right? It's, yes. it's yes, there's like fifty lines versus five, but like it, you can copy and paste it, you can kind of squint and see the bits that matter. Conceptually, it doesn't look 
all that different. There doesn't seem to be a reason to think that if you pull everything down, you're going to be buried under boulders, you know, like it'll. Exactly. And it's, and you don't realize that you're going to get buried under boulders until you've pulled the 50th application right. on and you don't have like the right sort of abstractions. And right. this, and, you know, it turns out there's some things that you really do want to centralize. This, this is a set of things that it really matters that you, um, that you can effectively um, uh, centralize. So, you know, engineering teams aren't as worried about, you know, the like in the moment, they're not as worried about the, the implications of security or compliance or, right. you know, risk management. But at some point, it's going to become their problem when, you know, someone in their management chain does start to sweat the details about that. And oh, like when you've... When you've when you've eventually, you know, kind of broken, you know, layers and layers of glass to get all the way to the bottom <laughs> of building on a pile of rubble, like yeah. it gets it gets a lot harder to refit that uh, into your into your your system. So um, that 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 to me was also kind of clear was that um, you know while you know the VM itself, the the raw kind of infrastructure compute gave the highest levels of optionality, it also just gave up massive opportunities to achieve, um, you know, if not economies of scale, certainly economies of scope, by making everything more uniform and more consistent and more normalized, right. um, you were uh, you were just giving up a lot of value. And so each operation, each organization ended up having to either use some high level tool provided by a particular vendor or settle at the lowest level, which is, you know, here's operating system, make it work. Uh, either way, you're you're stuck or you're wading through a lot of low-level stuff that you shouldn't have to build, which is not great. So it seems to me at this point, there's a pretty clear demand for something that it was higher level, but not so high level that I, I sacrificed my essential primitives for building applications like disk access and routing and, lo and load balancing and security and all that, but also portable because I don't want, I may not want, especially as, you know, I think the cards were pretty clear even back then as we become increasingly hybrid, multi-cloud, you know, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, what, did any of that figure into? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly right. So um, you, you wanted something that was the Goldilocks abstraction, right? low enough level to run pretty much anything. Right. High enough level that it hid you from the vagaries of a specific infrastructure destination. But also importantly, you know, based on where I was at, I was working at Google and like, I certainly hadn't given up on computer engine, right? Like, you know, wanted to see that succeed. You know, Joe and I put a, put our hearts into getting that project bootstrapped. So, you know, ask the question, oh, what could we do to make, you know, just hold option value for people to run workloads on, on Compute Engine. And um, at this at this point, um, and it's funny because like, I'd, I'd had my eyes on this little company called DocCloud for some time. And I, Docker. Yeah, and they, they, so there were, they were, that was Docker, right? Um, and it was funny because I, like I'm still kind of kicking myself because um, one of my engineers, really smart guy, came uh, to me one day and he was like, "Dude, this dark cloud stuff is magic. You have to look at it. It's just magic." Uh, and I was like, rah, 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 rah. "Like, you know, I was this, this was this was even before we did uh, this was even you know before computer engine shipped." He was oh, like, "Man, you have to look at this stuff. Like, I just like the abstraction. It's got great like." The usability and that became docker which became just obviously a, a fantastic way to solve one very specific problem that existed which is how do i package and deliver my software deterministically into any environment yeah how do I effectively abstract away the operating system and just create an atomic 
atomically sealed hermetic unit that I can then deploy into an environment where I don't have to write any scripts because it's, it's literally just a bin copy operation. Right. Deployment becomes bin copy, right? And, and everything you need is all self-contained in that. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, obviously Google had a fair bit of uh, skin in the game with, um, with containers, right? But if you look at the actual evolution of container technologies with things like LXC, um, it was really motivated by Google's internal use. Like they needed resource level partitioning at the operating system level. So that technologies like Borg, which was that sort of monolithic scheduler that, that, that still runs the totality of Google's infrastructure, um, could deploy an atom of work. And you know, it, Google, you know, originally thought it was a, a, a you know intellectual property that was highly valuable that they could hold back. But they they soon learned that the cost of constantly rebasing, um, you know, onto the you know what was happening in the next kernel was was just too high. And so they donated that technology, and that then eventually, uh, you know, through a series of, of 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 evolutions, became the baseline for what Docker did. And someone hikes just put lightning in a bottle. The guy just nailed it. Um, yeah. Such a such a, a beautiful, elegant, uh, intelligent um, abstraction, but most importantly, just ruthlessly focusing on what developers need to make it accessible and usable to them. And so you just had a great eye for that. And um, you know, Joe and I were then like watching the ascendance of Docker, and um, you know, I was working with another buddy of mine, uh, Brendan Burns, and um, he was. Uh, Creative genius, just uh, one of the most creative souls I've ever worked with. And uh, he, you know, we were, we were playing with ideas. And I, I, you know, we had an all hands meeting where we wanted to um, to to kind of show, you know, some of the incubation work we were doing. So I was trying to just put together this demo for, um, you know, for the team uh, around, you know, Docker. And he wrote some, you know, shell scripts and probably had there's probably Python and Java and all kinds of other <laughs> random stuff littered in there. And, but at the end of the day, I looked and I was like, oh my gosh, it's a personal Borg cell. You've taken four virtual machines, you've stitched them together, you've layered on the ability to use Docker as a scheduler. And I was like, at that moment, I knew there was something there. And that that then became uh that became Kubernetes, um, a, a a you know, an abstraction on top of virtual machines that carried forwards what was great about Docker, but took it to the next level where you could actually build some really useful complex systems and and bring some of the learnings that Google had acquired over you know a, a long long time um, running containers in, in, into that context. Wow, yeah, isn't that funny how it all kind of just full circle, right? Yeah, Linux containers begat Docker, doc, you know, Doc Cloud, and then Docker, and then that begat this little experiment, which then begat Kubernetes, which is also Google. You know, just you actually ended up. That's you, it's, Proving Google IP by giving away. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, in some ways, it was a natural closing of the arc, right? Like because you know Google had Borg, you know Facebook had uh, Tupperware, uh, Mesos had well, um, Twitter had Mesos. Everyone had one of these systems, and you know the the that that the container technology was the logical complement to the orchestration technology. Right. You know, the one couldn't exist without the other. Google couldn't get. Um, Borg to work without, you know, making contributions to the Linux kernel, and those contributions to the Linux kernel then allowed Facebook and uh, other organizations to start using the same class of scheduling technology. Um, and so it was logical that we'd want to kind of wrap back around and actually revisit 
you know, what that scheduler should look like, um, you know, in the open source ecosystem. Um, obviously, it, it wasn't obvious to everyone that Kubernetes would be it. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, Mesos was pretty dominant at the time, but, you know, we, 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 we were able to effectively make it open enough and accessible enough to build a vibrant community around the technology. I think that's really what kind of changed the game for, for you know, Kubernetes was really just the, the strength of that community that formed around it, not just the Google contributions, but the Red Hat and the core OSs and then later the VMwares and, you know, like even Docker and, you know, like every, like everyone's contributing to the, to the technology. Absolutely. And I think that's key right there is, I think you can argue that like Solaris zones preceded Linux containers, for example. They did. Yes. But, you know, Solaris wasn't what was installed in everybody's server circa 2010 or whatever, you know, that's, it didn't matter. It was, that's like saying, what's the price of bread in Timbuktu? It just doesn't matter, right? It's not, it's not germane yeah. to the conversation here. The lightning struck Linux. That's where it was, you know? So to make that work there was brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant. It, it made it so that everybody can converge on the same, in the same place. Cause we're already on Linux, most of us, you know? Uh, it just made sense to make that the uh, natural platform. And it's, it's taken off like a rocket since then, right? So you at some point left Google? <laughs> and we became part of the same community. Uh, yeah. Um, there. So it's, it was fun. it's a funny story. Um, my, my buddy, uh, Joe, um, decided he was going to take a break. Uh, like Joe, Joe's you know, been very successful in his career. And so he was like, he was going to retire at the time. So he's like, I'm just going to retire. Like, I'm, 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 I'm tired. Like he, he did compute engine and Kubernetes and he was tuckered up. Yeah. Um, and so I decided to stick around because I, like, I love working and I'll, I'll probably work until I die. I, but, you know, I don't need to retire, I just need to die. Um, and uh, you and the sharks. <laughs> yeah. But um, he he was, uh, uh, you know, he was he was out in the in the wild and eventually. But the thing Joe also likes working turns out. So like, you know, after about six months, he was you know starting to kind of, you know, ping me every now and then like, hey, what would it look like if we did a startup? And I was like, no, no, no like, yeah, whatever. Um, and, you know, I was working on stuff uh, inside Google um, related to um, kind of API management. So I sponsored the acquisition of uh, Apogee from within the, the company. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And I was, was playing with what, you know, what became service meshes. Now, I can't claim credit for uh, Istio. It really isn't what I uh, what I had in mind. Like the team came up with a, uh, you know, something that was a little different to what I was thinking about. But um, I was kind of, you know, playing with that stuff. And then I was, I got really friendly with, um, you know, uh, Chet Kapoor, who's just a remarkable human being. And like, I remember, like, I was just asking, like, you know, so what's it like to be a founder? And like, you know, how, you know, how do you be, like, I was kind of enamored of this sort of founder persona that um, had kind of led this company to become a publicly traded uh, entity. It was like, well, you, you really want to look for this moment in the industry where, um, you know, think there you know, change is happening and the incumbents can't move fast enough and, and he laid they laid this out. And I remember walking down the down the uh, a flight of stairs at my house one day, and I just this almost felt like lightning striking me. I was like, "Oh my goodness, I'm never going to see another opportunity." And Chet's words were kind of you know rolling around in my head about like what got him to start um, Apogee. And uh, I just um, I knew I had to do it. Like it wasn't it wasn't smart. It wasn't wasn't necessarily wise. Um, you know, generally, you know, doing a startup is, is not necessarily, everyone looks at the success cases, but that, 
if you're doing well in a in a in a in a big tech company like Google, you're probably going to make make out better than you would by doing a startup. Statistically, but, yeah. Uh, but uh, I just I had to do it, and um, I really saw this gap between um, enterprise organizations and uh, and the open source technologies like Kubernetes, right? Like I saw Google's ability to drive a technology like GKE, like Google Kubernetes Engine, or Amazon doing AKS or an EKS or whatever the case may be. But a lot of enterprise organizations just weren't there. You know, like they were on-prem. They were in, you know, they were, this, this was before multi-cloud even happened. And I was like, wow, you know, someone should really step forwards and engage with these enterprise organizations that are looking to create self-service consumption experiences for this class of technology. And uh, you know, effectively be a bridge between them and, and an ecosystem like, uh, like a Kubernetes. Um, and so Joe and I started uh, this little company, Heptio. And um, I, you know, I called up uh, some VC contacts, got some funding, and, uh, and we were off to the races. And you know, we were only independent for a couple of years, but it was a, it was a really fun journey. Yeah, I, like, I think uh, well, it was a crunch base, like, 35 million raised or whatever. I mean, there's obviously a lot of people that believed in it, you know, big, big potential and certainly delivered a lot of big, uh, big things. So uh, I was a, you know, I had a, like an imaginary heptail flag, you know, <laughs> I was waving from the sidelines there uh, and could have fooled me. It could have, it could have knocked me down with a feather when I saw that uh, VMware uh, had, you know, entered into an agreement. So then I don't know what the return is to, Acquire. <laughs> Acquire, yeah. Acquire, yeah. Um, which is great. I'm, you know, I'm very, very proud of VMware for doing that. It made a lot of sense. I just didn't, I thought other companies would have gotten there as well. And I'm just very happy that uh, you ended up at this one because that's, you know, this, this, this old VMware thing, this could be, it could have legs. You just watch. It's going to be big one day, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's funny. The calculus of that is always tough, right? Like you, um, you know, as a, as a, like, there was no reason to sell the company particularly, um, you know, on, on surface value. I mean, we were, we were doing very well, you know, we'd won some prestigious accounts, some really big name accounts. Um, you know, we were on track to raise another round of funding. Um, but, you know, I sat down with Ragu and I sat down with Pat and like, you know, just to be honest, I used to delight in giving the corporate development teams to run around. <laughs> like, I, wouldn't, I really didn't want to sell the company. You know, like you, you build something and it, it, you, you imprint yourself onto it and it's, it's very much a part of you. But there were two things that really stood out for me. Um, you know, one is simply a recognition that we were likely a day late and a dollar short on this as well. Like, Joe and I, you know, this was a story of our life with um, Compute Engine. Like, um, you know, meaning that, there was this amazing opportunity to create something of you know like unique value in the world. Yeah. Because um, you know, I, I've I've long maintained, and you know, I, I think this has played out pretty well that you know, we were gonna see this this like multi-cloud becoming a real point of pressure for enterprise organizations, you know, whether it's regulators being concerned about um concentration risk. Uh, we hadn't seen the sort of you always talk about the kind of black swan moment where like a hostile state actor gets into a public cloud control plane and does something really, you know, nasty or, you know, we just hadn't, you know, like it, to me, it felt like we were likely going to see something that would, would force enterprises to really think carefully about their, um, their multi-cloud strategy. 
even the mundanities of procurements, like just you know being in a multi-party uh, relationship and being able to use a variety of different infrastructure environments and and you know kind of navigate like negotiate um, you know negotiate from a multi you know from a multi you know if if you're effectively in a monopoly um, you know it, it becomes really hard for for the customers to 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 achieve value so. I looked at this opportunity to what Joe always called it the kind of meta cloud, you know, like like the, the ability to layer an abstraction on top of the cloud that renders up. You know, I'm a big fan of this kind of theory of economies of scope. You know, people talk a lot about economies of scale, and cloud is a perfect expression of economies of scale. When you buy a gazillion widgets, you pay less for the gazillionth widget than you pay for the hundredth widget. But people often miss the, the power of economies of scope, meaning if you're buying a bunch of widgets that are in different sizes, so some set are imperial and some set are metric, by just converging on metric size widgets, it actually creates efficiencies because you buy more of those widgets, so you get the economies of scale, but you also buy metric drill bits and die sockets and wrenches and everything else. And you know everything just gets more efficient. Right. And so that opportunity to to build out that um, that meta cloud to give you know like always you know and, and and through all of this like channeling the needs of that poor soul that's sitting in that IT shop and like you know like I just imagine like you know like what my team would have had to deal with like you know I had a lot of folks that were Visual Basic developers or Java developers or you know whatever developers and you know once they got familiar and comfortable with a set of tools like it would be traumatic to make them you know just give that up and learn something new you know. Sure. Like I didn't have the time and resources to retrain them. Um, you know, they may delight in learning something new, but at the same time, you had to you had responsibilities to the business. And sure. so, just looking for those economies of scope was was there. And, and VMware represented an opportunity for us to just you know get like I always think about that Jaws situation where there's that you know the shark is the opportunity here, and it's just like I just need a bigger boat. You know, I'm like. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, this was, this was an opportunity. And, and frankly, I, I just really liked, uh, I like Ragu. I've known Ragu for a long time. And, uh, okay. uh, you know, an opportunity to kind of work with someone that smart was just compelling. I found to be Pat a very um, charismatic, and I always think of him as Uncle Pat. Uh, <laughs> and whenever I talk about him to my team or to, to my wife, it's always Uncle Pat, like just a, a remarkable leader. Um, yeah. And so just an opportunity to be a part of something bigger. And, you know, my ambitions and the company's ambitions were very well aligned. So I didn't ever think of it as like a selling out moment. It was more of a buying in moment. I, I was buying into the, the vision that uh, Ragu had. And I just wanted to be a part of that journey. So that, that's what led me to this. Uh, and and that's awesome. That's obviously I'm a big fan uh, because uh, not, a, not, a, not a minute later, uh, VMware acquired or I don't know what the, again, I don't know what the right word is, but VMware, uh, Pivotal came back, right? Uh, the, the team came back home. And yeah. um, and so that meant that now we're all in the same building and now there's this wonderful opportunity, the virtual building, of course, I should say. Uh, but uh, now there's this wonderful opportunity for these different groups of developers, really. I mean, these are all people that care about the, the work of building software to at some point deal with infrastructure, but you're dealing with software. You, these are people that care about the people who are dealing with the rogue, rogue shadow IT organizations of yours. you know? These people yeah. are all now in the same place. We all get, we're all focused on making the lives of developers better. Kubernetes is already out there, but, and Heptio had started to deliver on that multi-cloud uh, story. What else was left to do? What's next? Yeah, and I think this is, this is the thing that got really exciting for me. And it's, 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 it's interesting because, um, 
you know, I remember like, you know, I remember we, I used to have this kind of standoffish relationship with, uh, with Cloud Foundry. Like it was always that sort of, when you ran into the Cloud Foundry folks, it's always that sort of thousand yard stare, hey, we're competing against each other. Um, and, uh, you know, because, you know, Cloud Foundry, like even things like Cloud Native, like I, I created this, this software foundation called the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. I remember, uh, you know, a, a person who's now a, a really, you know, great friend of mine, James Waters, being like, what the heck, dude? Like, I've been using Cloud Native for a while. You can't just go and conscript the term that I've been using for whatever. Um, and in many ways, he was right. I mean, you know, the a lot of the concepts that were sort of ideated in, in the, the Cloud Foundry ecosystem, you know, were tremendously um, you know, valuable and then they remain, you know, true and actually create a lot of value to this day and will continue to create value, you know, in perpetuity. I, uh, I uh, published a book called Cloud Native Java, which is uh, all Cloud Foundry at the time. I remember, I remember that being like, huh, smart, very smart. I would have called the foundation that too, but, uh, you know, and by the way, aren't you part of the Cloud Foundry Foundation now? I'm the chairman of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, so it's all I, good. I don't, I don't know anyone. Else. Yeah, so I was actually, it's funny. I, I was the chairman of the CNCF board when we got it going. And then um, now I'm actually sitting on the Cloud Foundry board. And it's, 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 it is, it's been a lot of fun because, um, you know, when you're, you know, first and foremost, I think there's a false dichotomy. Like, uh, you know, when I look at a technology like Kubernetes, it's, you know, Kubernetes is at its root an infrastructure abstraction. It, it, it it's, it's offering up, you know, it's that sort of like, again, it's that Goldilocks, you know, layer. And it offers up, you know, favorable capabilities that allow you to build, you know, kind of real world distributed applications for that environment. So it's not just an infrastructure abstraction. The Cloud Foundry was really an application level of abstraction. And, um, and there's some things that just works better for, frankly. Like if you think about the world of, of traditional .NET workloads, like, you know, no one loves Kubernetes more than I do, but like, gosh, on Windows, it's a bit of a saga. And, you know, I remember the old days of Windows with, uh, you know, the, the way that the, the Windows systems composed. Like, turns out you're probably going to be better off an application level abstraction if you're running relatively traditional Windows uh, workloads. Um, so that's something that, you know, I see Cloud Foundry as, as, as managing in perpetuity. But also, if you look at the value associated with that closed system that gives a secure software supply chain, yeah, um, you're you're going to you know be able to unlock velocity. So, just finding a way to kind of thread the needle, really bring these two communities together. Look, take a lot of the ideation of, you know, like build packs. Like, gosh, that is such a powerful construct. Yeah, um, and it's never been more relevant uh, than it is today. When you start looking at you know folks trying to reason about securing their their enterprise software supply chain, um, you know, being able to have an opportunity to work with the organization that really made that accessible, brought that to the Kubernetes ecosystem and can now continue to drive the evolution of it. It's just, uh, just wonderful. So- um, It's the economies of scope you were talking about before, right? They are embracing metric for certain workloads. Cloud Foundry is the metric system. You know, it's just this, it's one thing, it's not everything, but it, it, yeah. it allows you to worry about less on this other stuff. And I, I mean, I see some of our customers when what they're doing with this technology, like, um, you know, one customer I spoke to recently, they have six permanent staff running their Cloud Foundry uh, topology. Yeah. And they're supporting well over 10,500 developers. Now that, that ratio, like that's impressive. Like that, that yeah. that's not easy to do, right? Like um, that's, that's a heck of an SRE to developer ratio. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so 
that that we want the best of that. We want things like uh, like you mentioned the secure uh, supply chain, right? The the idea that I have tools at every step to sort of make sure I know the provenance of the bits in my running application, right? Yes. Even the bits that I don't supply, but the platform. Yes, and, and this is like this is this is becoming increasingly critical, right? Like if you look at if you look at the the sophistication of the threat vectors that enterprise organizations are dealing with today. Um, you know, it used to be that, you know, hey, you know, static code scans gives you, you know, like, um, I'm probably going to be okay. But um, as folks are already looking to kind of ratchet down and are seeing supply chain um, attack vectors, being able to control your supply chain and establish who you trust as effectively providers or purveyors of software, uh, being able to kind of attest the chain of custody associated with the artifacts that you're putting into a production context to make sure that the systems that are actually producing those artifacts are in some ways harder than and secure themselves. Um, it creates just a, a, a tremendously challenging story. And for an enterprise organization, you know, there's enough open source widgetry out there that you, you know, if you have enough time and uh, effort and you're willing to put it together, sure, you could probably assemble something from piece parts, but is that going to be the best use of your resources? You know, if you're a software company in the banking sector, as I like to think of as banks these days, right? You probably don't want to be using your scarce development resources to build that. No. Um, if you're a software company that's that happens to sell physical goods, as I like to think of as retail these days, um, same same dynamics apply. And so, just you know, bringing together this, the totality of the piece parts to start rendering up that supply chain dynamic is 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 fascinating. Now, here's where, it, for me, it gets really fascinating because, um, you know, as part of obviously the Pivotal acquisition, we also got access to this wonderful Spring community that's just, you know, driven something that I, you know, like it's the, the like I am so impressed with the Spring abstraction because, you know, one is it's, it's the simplicity, it's it's clean, it's simple, it's 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 accessible, it's elegant, right? And that that like taste actually matters, like it turns out in technology, and it's. You know, by and large, just has good taste. Um, but the other thing that's just so powerful about it is the inversion of control model, right? Like the idea that you can fully decouple your developers and you have you know, engineers that are just focused on the, the business logic, but then you can do the dependency binding, um, you know, down, you know, further down the track. That 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 IOC um, and that sort of dependency injection model is is so powerful. So powerful. And you know the, now the question is, well, that's great for Spring, and it's 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 what's really you know catapulted Spring into its into its its sort of strength in the Java ecosystem. But what would that look like for JavaScript? What would that look like for you know uh, Python? What would that look like for native applications? Like we're never going to we're not necessarily going to get to so every language environment is going to have its own kind of you know complexities. But how much can we start to bring that? Polyglot dependency injection model, um, and and you know, fuse that together with the, um, you know, with a secure software supply chain, and bring in, you know, some of the lessons learned in in, in Kubernetes, and that's that's what we're really you know, kind of focused on now with the uh, the Tanzu application platform offering, and I, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I think it's you know it's going to open up a lot of new new patterns. It's it's something that must exist, you know, on the Kubernetes ecosystem because Kubernetes just isn't, you know, you don't you don't want developers to even no. know it's there necessarily. Like, I'm, I still apologize for the YAML. Like, sorry, you know, we never meant you to have to interact with it. It was always like, 
oh, it'll just be like an intermediate language and there'll be tooling abstractions on top of it. But it just never converged in a way that was accessible to people. So um, the barriers to entry are just way too high. Um, and I think, having... oh, sorry, Ken. No, no, keep going. I just, one of the things I'm, I'm don't, don't get me wrong. I'm the first to make a joke about the YAML, right? I, I, uh, no offense, just, it's just fun. It, it's just fun and it has to be done. But that said, uh, like, it's not, it's not lost on people that make fun of the YAML that this is the way you feed the machine, but most people don't make their own food. You know, they, they, something else does. And that's why there's all these great tools whose sole function is to sort of output the ammo, you know, yeah. the core thing and output the ammo. So, you know, obviously there's a whole, we've got Carvel, right. And there's a bunch of other things out there as well that sort of work in that space and customize and, uh, you know, all these different tools. That's one thing. And then the other thing is Kubernetes itself has a really good, component model, right? It's not yeah. that you have to sit, stay at the abstract level of the abstraction that ships out of the box, right? You can easily and readily layer up very quickly. Yeah, and this is the thing that I think is powerful about it. Um, it you know, it's funny, like, I, I remember when, um, again, my, my friend Brandon Burns, a creative genius, proposed the custom resource definition, the CRD. Um, oh. And I was like, you're out of your mind. <laughs> this is the craziest idea I've ever heard you ever say. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is like, this is this legit. Work. <laughs> I was like, you're letting like random people program the control plane. Are you crazy? And then you start looking at it, like what you could actually accomplish. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. um, like you can actually bring this in. Like, cause Brennan is like, he's like the Renaissance man, right? Like he was always like, um, he was a robotics professor. He can, like, he, I don't know how fast he can run, but he runs very fast. You know, he, uh, he can, he can draw like he's, 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 he's sort of like liberal arts, you know, uh, but you know, a lot of that sort of like, um, you know, he, he always geeked on control theory. Yeah. Uh, like, um, and, you know, being able to bring this kind of like reconciler based model to, you know, an arbitrary, you know, problem space has just created so much value. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the, you know, the ability to, you know, package those, those up with, you know, the associated pieces, deploy them into that context, makes it so easy to layer up those abstractions. And because it's running on something like Kubernetes, which is infrastructure agnostic, um, it's now intrinsically portable, right? You know, it's one of the things I always, you know, you know encourage my team is, like, you know, Tanzu is not about um, just Tanzu Kubernetes grid. Tanzu is about any Kubernetes, like, um, if we can create value on OpenShift, let's create value on OpenShift. We can create value on EKS, AKS, GKE, Rancher, you name it. We're going to create value there because often the people that are serving the business don't get to pick their infrastructure destination, but they do get to pick their tools. Right. Um, and so, you know, if Kubernetes is wrapped up as part of the infrastructure destination that was picked for you, you better have an answer. You better be able to create value for them, um, you know, either through open source contributions, um, but you know, also through um, you know through commercial products. And so, uh, you know, the the mission here is to is to really think through that sort of elegant set of abstractions that we can bring on top of this this environment. Find ways to offer delightful tools to engineers who are doing you know hard work every day. Like I always come back to most stressful moment in my life was that uh, that time at the uh, hedge fund where I learned about, you know, I always used to think I liked stress, right? It, it, it made me, I always used to joke that, um, you know, I, it would make me a little bit unhealthy because I'd stop exercising, I'd eat too much. 
Um, but I discovered the kind of stress that, you know, stopped me sleeping and stopped me eating. And that was like, that was just a, a bridge too far. Um, yeah. And so, you know, bringing, bringing technologies to those individuals that, you know, gives it higher abstraction, enables them to just do good work in any context, is layered in well with the programming language and environment of their choice, uh, works well in a multi-cloud context, whether it's public cloud, private cloud, or right. edge, uh, just makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. So the custom resource definition is low level, right? That's this event-driven thing that you can respond to, which I love. That means you can just, anybody can work with it because anybody can consume those events. That in turn gives you building blocks, but it's still, you can easily deploy that. You you have custom um, objects, if you will, very much like Spring. You've got these things that can control the control plane. You build on top of that. Now you've got things that, you know, you can do service meshes. You can do all sorts of things. What is the distinguishing feature of TAP? Like, are we, what kind of workloads are we making easier? Yeah, so, yeah, so I mean, obviously TAP works really well with Spring. So, you know, because we have such a, a deep relationship with the Spring community, you know, you know, TAP really answers the question, how do I operationalize Spring for Kubernetes environment, you know, pretty neatly. So that's 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 clearly our, our, our starting you know, point. Now, also recognizing that, you know, as 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 individuals progress on their journey, um, you know, not everything they build is going to be a microservices based uh, API fronted middleware component. Um, there's going to be a whole bunch of uh, stream based processing, there's going to be um, activated workloads, lambda-like workloads that you want to, evolve, or you know, functions that you want to be able yeah. to scale to zero, uh, and then you know, scale up in a in an efficient way and, and use them to kind of process a request. There's going to be batch processing workloads, and 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 there's going to be AIML. There's going to be a whole bunch of these workloads. So, what we're looking to answer with TAP is really one: what set of runtime capabilities do you need to be present to Make those workloads, uh, you know, make those patterns of development accessible in a in a developer uh, experience. How do we layer on a set of you know services that you might want to consume, whether it's like a RabbitMQ or uh, you know messaging services? How do we layer on uh, or make accessible um, things like relational databases? And I think the the sort of the evolution of the service broker methodology represented you know one way to think about it, but like. How do we really take that kind of you know spring dependency injection and, and make it so that you can do dynamic declarative binding to those production services that you want to use, whether they're running in a Kubernetes cluster or running outside of a Kubernetes cluster? Wow, um, accessible. Um, how do you structure a a delivery apparatus that isn't grounded in relatively traditional sort of uh, state machine centric workflows? Like, how can you actually start to use um, level triggered Kubernetes reconciler? Uh, patterns to to actually drive your continuous integration and delivery um, cycle. So you know for that sort of outer loop of of continuous delivery, without being so closed off that you, you're you're being you're super opinionated. You know, like sometimes people are going to want to use Tecton. Um, you know, that you have to maintain that sort of optionality. But this pattern of choreography that was really um, sort of envisaged in the Kubernetes world is a very powerful way to think about organizing workflows. You don't have to write as like the compensation logic tends to show up in these controllers. So you don't have these, these kind of janky um, workflow-based technologies that uh, that require you to kind of you know deal with a lot of um, a lot of the challenges. Like having 
a declarative express intent. I want this to be in this context. You know, you take this from here, run the scanning, and then you know, once the scanning is done, signal that the scanning is done, and then you know, I can then you know trigger the next you know cycle of the of the evolution without you know writing a bunch of you know um, kind of you know relatively traditional workflow centric um, right. actions is 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 is, is quite powerful. Is that is that are you referring in some way to cartographer there? Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. I think cartographers, that's a pretty amazing because um, you you can see that the for me at least the thing that I love about Spring is I can take like there's certain roles you have in your application. Those roles do a certain kind of thing, but they're not you know it's not like there's only one that does the job. There's a million different ways to map your objects to the database, for example. So Spring doesn't care. We give you a thing that sits on top of all that, and you can plug in any one based on its role, and yeah. it work right. And, the, and that now I can kind of see with cartographer, I don't care who gives me the container, right? I don't care who gives me, uh, you know, the source code. I, I mean, all these things; these are just become higher level primitives, and they're they can be bound at runtime as opposed to at de declaration or de definition time. You know? Yeah, exactly. Genius. Absolutely genius. So that's I imagine that's a big part of uh, tap, right? Is that is we have the ability to now Describe yeah. as very flexible, pliable workloads. We have support for higher level workflows, per, you know, primitives to describe the common cases. But the fact is, they're still decomposable. You can pick them, choose, and you can and, and wire together the way that you need to, and uh, it, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. And then you know, the other thing is, you know, that I think a lot about is um, you know being able to get to a point where you, you have a declarative expression of the application itself. You know, so the construct, the sort of workload construct, where um, if you look at something like Spring Initializer, it's fabulous. You know, you go there, uh, it just generates, you know, just generates your, um, you know, the scaffolding that you need. You know, start wiring away, and off you go. Yeah, it give you the runbook. <laughs> it doesn't no. give you. It doesn't give you. It doesn't. It does. You know, like you want that declarative runbook that basically says, well, once I've built it, and I want to hand this thing off to this kind of system that's going to kind of run it through the ringer of, 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 you know, continuous integration and delivery. I want to be able to preserve the context, you yeah. know, so that like, I, I want, I don't, I, I want to get away from building platform aware applications. I want to be able to rely on an application aware platform, but for me to be able to do that, I really need, you know, uh, an expression of, of, of what the constituent pieces are. And so, you know, just starting with things like the accelerators, which I see every enterprise organization struggling with this, where, they really want a set of prescriptive patterns. You know, it's like here is if you're building a, you know, I'm, you're building a, a module that plugs into a Kafka-based stream and you know does a bloody blah. You know, you do a bunch of these. Um, here's a here's a logical way to describe it, um, including all of the um, sort of attributes you need to be able to consume it on the production side. So, um, so that's that's uh, you know I think that you know kind of closing out the arc by just making those those logical starting points, you know, kind of clean. Yeah, it gives you it gives you like a lot of the power that was originally manifest in, in something like Cloud Foundry, um, but it gives you the optionality to consume, you know, like just a diaspora of different kind of runtime destinations and uh, you know um, uh, you know platform level services and and other capabilities that would not otherwise be available. I Spring Boot for Kubernetes. That's what it sounds like you just said to me, and it sounds great. I love it. Um, well, okay. Well, yeah, that's more than I could have asked for, or and certainly more than uh, uh, you know anybody would have expected. 
It's amazing. I am, what do you think? Starting from Cape Town, you know, so long ago and, and now here at the very precipice of the next kind of uh, architectural paradigm in the cloud. How do you feel about it also so far? Going well? It's been a fun journey, but it's, it's you know, there's a lot of work still to do. Like developers are still out there um, out. struggling to get, um, get, you know, get the sort of getting, um, you know, getting their applications into production. So I feel like this, this, this is just a, an inordinate and, and wonderful amount of work to do. I think there's yeah. some fascinating opportunities to answer the question, like what should, you know, what should this meta cloud look like? How do we avoid um, kind of falling back into the mainframe era? Like no one wants to go back to mainframe era. Like, like uh, and, and, you know, if we don't do this, it, it really, you know, the cloud really starts to feel like a mainframe. Like that's like, you know, no one got, no one got fired for buying blah. <laughs> um, and I, I don't want to live in that world. Like okay. I, 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 I like the, you know, I like what happened with, you know, client server computing technologies and what, what the sort of windows and Intel kind of consortium brought to the table. And, you know, for me, it's, it's just an opportunity to make sure that we keep the, the ecosystem open. We serve developers with technologies that they can consume that, that, that makes sense for them. And, right. um, I never want to build uh, a wall around cloud. I think that's I think that's naive. There's, there is a lot of value in this in the services. Like if you want something that looks like Spanner, there's only really one place you can get Spanner. If you want it at the level that Google can provide it, like not everyone has atomic clocks in their data centers. Yep. If you want that, that's what you're probably going to have to get. But uh, you know, I think there's just a, a lot of great work to do still, and I'm really excited to be a part of the journey. Where do people uh, find you? on the internet if you want to be found where they can learn more about whatever you're working on. I'm uh, C McCluck at Twitter is probably the, the best way to get hold of me. C-M-C-L-U-C-K at twitter.com. Thank you for spelling and, it out. Nobody uh, ever yeah, I'm, I'm always excited to hear from people and uh, looking forward to continuing this, this conversation with the community over time. And I look forward to following you. Thank you so much for your time, Craig. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to connect. A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.